All right, well, I feel like I've said this several times already, but welcome back to our Getting to Know the Old Testament series after several weeks off, you know, with the holidays and some guest speakers, and then we are on vacation. Our Sunday night schedule has been a little erratic, at least when it's come to this new series. But the good news is, I think we're set from here on out. We should be able to have a solid stretch without interruption, Lord willing. But I'm happy to get back to studying the Old Testament. I love studying the Old Testament, mining it, its treasures for all it's worth. I bet some of you may have overlooked the study of the Old Testament in your lives, but that would be your loss because it contains some foundational and profound revelation of God, his character, his nature, his will, his salvation. You don't want to overlook the Old Testament. And with this study, we're not trying to say everything there is to say about the Old Testament. We're just trying to help you get to know the Old Testament better, book by book, by spending an evening which, with each book of the Old Testament. And book by book, trying to take you deeper in an understanding of Scripture's background, themes, and most importantly, purpose, and why these books were written, and how they relate to us today, the church. We're not Israel. But they, they're still inspired and profitable. How? We aim to find out, well, book by book, that you might better appreciate and apprehend its truths. And this evening, we're going to carry on with the third book of the Old Testament. We're really just starting this study, and that's Leviticus. Leviticus has a special place in the Old Testament for most people for the wrong reason. For most people, Leviticus is special because it's the book of the Bible that, that puts an end to their New Year's resolution to read through the Bible, right? They get through Genesis, no problem. Exodus, it's got plenty of action, they get to Leviticus and they just can't get through the laws and the rules and the rituals and they give up on their resolution. But no, Leviticus is special for a better reason. And for, for many things, it outlines the sacrificial system for Israel along with their priesthood. And that becomes such a dominating feature throughout the entire Old Testament and the history of Israel. As you know that the tabernacle and the sacrifices and the priesthood, they all also serve as shadows of Christ. In this system, God was revealing quite a bit about what it takes for God to dwell with man once again, for us to be accepted by this God. And even though we're no longer under the old covenant system, we can learn a lot about God and his salvation by studying Leviticus. It's, it's a great book. And furthermore, much of the New Testament is completely dependent on Leviticus specifically, of note is the book of Hebrews. You cannot understand Hebrews if you do not know Leviticus. That's a special book that's really tied into so much of Leviticus. So we're going to get into it this evening, kind of keeping our same outline. We'll start with a basic background, just kind of wade into what this book is about, help you get to know it, and then into some of its themes and purposes and, and so forth. Now, the title in Hebrew was, And He Called. Because they, of the Torah, they just named the books from the first phrase. And the Septuagint is called Levitical, meaning a book pertaining to the Levites. But that's only partially the case. It's really for more than just the Levites, but that's where Leviticus comes from today. The author was Moses, along with the rest of the Torah. Moses is internally attested as the author many times. In fact, go to the last Verse. If you're not already open to Leviticus, just take your Bibles and open them now to Leviticus 27, verse 34, the final verse. 
It says, these are the commandments which the Lord commanded Moses for the sons of Israel at Mount Sinai. This one example, over 50 times it's mentioned that the laws and the instructions of Leviticus were passed down from God to Israel through Moses. And the phrase, the Lord said to Moses is used over 25 times. And so Moses received these instructions via direct revelation and at some point wrote them down for Israel. Speaking of, let's cover the audience. It, some have assumed that Leviticus is just for the Levites, just for the priests, you know, given the title. And it is true that instruction for the priesthood dominates a good portion of Leviticus. But no, that, that's not entirely the case that the, the laws and the instructions of this book were given to all the sons of Israel. Its laws were meant for the whole nation. So the audiences were just national Israel in perpetuity. The date uh, for Leviticus, just a year after the Exodus. So that's 1445 or 1444, depending on the exact date you put for the Exodus. But the events of Leviticus take place exactly one year after the Exodus. If you remember, the book of Exodus ends with the tabernacle finally being constructed. And Exodus 40:17 says that took place in the first day of the first month of the second year. So literally one year after the Exodus, the tabernacle is built. Then you fast forward a little bit to the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 1, verse 1. That takes place on the first day of the second month of the second year. So one month later. But Leviticus takes place in between. So that means... All the events of Leviticus span a 30-day period, just the first month, the second year after the Exodus. Israel is still there at the base of Mount Sinai. Remember, after the Exodus, God, his plan was to lead them to this mount, this holy mount. He would come down, make this covenant with them, formally call them out as his people. The tabernacle was built there, right there. And they're still there. They're not going to leave Mount Sinai until later in the book of Numbers. And so the instruction that we find in Leviticus, God gives to Moses at the tent of meeting throughout this 30-day period. We'll learn more about what that's all about as we carry on. So that's just kind of the basic background of Leviticus. It's, it's a book of law for Israel given right at, at their formation as a holy nation. Now, when it comes to, to structure, or an outline. And so far we've studied Genesis and Exodus. Those are mostly narrative. Meaning that they, they, they read like stories or narratives. Their outlines span hundreds if not thousands of years in the case of Genesis. Leviticus is different. It only contains a few short narrative episodes. It's mostly law. Law giving or instruction about Israel's religious life. And so it doesn't have a chronological or geographical outline. Instead, it's organized around the content of God's instruction for the nation. And just kind of big picture is two parts. The first is how Israel is to worship Yahweh. You can call that chapters 1 through 10. And the second is how Israel is to walk before Yahweh, verses 11 through 27. Worship and walk, 1 through 10, 11 through 27. God is holy. He must be worshipped as holy. And Israel must live in a holy manner as well. Now, I actually have a 
much more detailed outline that I prepared and actually put it up on a slide. But when we put the slide up, it's way too small. You couldn't read anything. And so I think next time I'll probably go back and resort to handouts to some of this stuff because I'm not going to read an outline. I expect you to write it down really quick. If you want to see a more detailed outline, hey, get a good study Bible or come see me after and I'll give you an outline for Leviticus. But uh, for tonight, the overhead, it was just too small and I didn't have time to, to, to mess with it. Let's move on to a purpose. You know, the, the purpose of this book, what this book is really about. And to start, let's kind of quickly retrace the flow of the Torah so far. The Torah, the first five books of the Bible. It's, God makes the world. It's a perfect world, but it's, it's corrupted. It's cursed. But God deems to restore and redeem this, this world. He initiates that plan through one man, Abraham. And then his descendants, who will be his special covenant people. And through this people, then God is going to represent his name on the earth and, and let his light shine to all the nations with his salvation. And so Exodus recalls that the formal formation of this people, Israel, after 400 years of slavery, Israel had multiplied into a mighty nation, but they weren't a holy nation. They, they were not set apart unto God in true worship. I mean, think about Israel in Egypt. What did they really know about Yahweh? They had the oral history, their tradition from their patriarchs passed down orally. But from what we know, they were not strict monotheists. They worshiped the gods of the Egyptians. They were largely just wicked and unbelieving. But God was going to change that. He was going to reveal himself through Moses to this people and make them entirely his own. After redeeming them from Egypt, he brought them out to Mount Sinai where he would formally enter covenant into or enter into a covenant with them, reveal his character to them, much more than they had heard from the patriarchs passed down, reveal his law to them, and, and so on and so forth. He was going to be their God. They would be his people. He was going to make them into a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So they already were a nation, but now they're going to become a holy nation, a nation that's set apart, unto Yahweh alone. And so this concept now of Israel as a holy nation, that's what Leviticus is all about. That comes to the forefront of Leviticus. How did God plan to set Israel apart and make them his own holy nation? Well, they're going to be set apart by a different land. They're going to have their own promised land. They'd be set apart by God's presence dwelling in their midst and set apart by this tabernacle where God would dwell in their midst. And so far, these distinctions had already been established in Exodus. But God wanted to even further set apart Israel as his people, make them different from the nations, make them distinct as his own. He wanted to further make them a holy nation. And so Leviticus goes on in great detail to show how God was going to make them distinct. They're going to be set apart in lifestyle. He's going to give them a distinct way of life. They'll be set apart in morality. He will establish his standard of right and wrong. They'll be set apart in worship. That He'll give them sacrifices and feasts with which to approach him. And they'll be set apart in a priesthood, which will oversee the ceremonial life of the nation. 
And so the purpose of Leviticus then is just to detail these distinctions. And it's just further forming the identity of Israel as God's holy chosen nation. It's just Leviticus really ramps up how set apart Israel is from all the other nations. No longer were they going to resemble or behave like the Egyptians or the other nations around them. That would not be tolerated anymore. Up to this point, they could eat pork, for example. And things are going to change, and, and they're going to worship Yahweh alone. So Yahweh gave Israel the instruction they needed that they might live as his chosen people and dwell with their holy God. That's what Leviticus is about. Now, before we get into other themes, uh, I include a section in our time, for lack of a better term, I call it a special focus in books and and just a a key theme, you might say, that I really want to hone in on. And for Leviticus, we'll we'll have a couple. And so the first special focus here as we, we go a little deeper into what Leviticus is all about is just, well, holiness. So the first special focus, holiness. Seeing that the purpose of Leviticus revolves around holiness and holiness is its main theme. I figured we kind of have to single out holiness as a special focus. If, if there's ever one word from here on out that comes to your mind when you think of Leviticus, well, it's, it's going to be holiness. What does holiness mean? Well, in essence, in its most basic form, it just means set apart, consecrated. But that, that kind of basic notion of being set apart is utilized in Scripture in many different ways. And so it starts with God. First and foremost, you begin with God's own holiness. That God is holy. But God is holy in a way we are not and we can never be. We start with something called ontological holiness. It just means God's holiness in his being. Because he's divine. He's the divine creator. We're not. So just in his very nature, he's set apart. He's the divine creator of all things. And so he is set apart from all of his creation. And while we are not the eternal divine creator, he will always be set apart. Now, God's ontological holiness or the holiness of his own being, that of course extends down to his ethical holiness. Where this perfect God is also holy in his character. He's free from sin. He's free from evil. That's how we kind of normally think of holiness in in a sense. But that's also God. He's pure. He's perfect. No, we are not. We are neither holy in our nature nor holy in our behavior. We're after the fall, unholy, defiled, profane. But see, God here in his good will, he chose Israel to be his people. And he, he made them holy. He took them, separated them. You're now my own people. You're going to represent my name. I will dwell in your midst. So corporately, he's consecrating them. So now Israel as a nation becomes holy by definition. They're a set apart people. This is by God's choosing. God didn't choose them because they already were holy, kind of like we learned this morning. No, but rather, despite their unholiness and despite their uncleanness, despite their unbelief and their false worship of Egyptian gods, God still set his love on them, called them, brought them out, made them separate, entered into a covenant with them, dwelt in their midst. 
This being the case, though, if the perfect holy God of creation was going to dwell with this people, they're going to have to change. They will have to be holy too. They're going to have to be set apart from the common and the profane. They'd have to be set apart from sin and evil. Only then could God dwell in their midst and they could begin to approach him. Even still, if you know your Old Testament, that the people were still separate from God because he was still represented his special presence in the veil, in the Holy of Holies, in which, uh, into which no one could go except the high priest once a year. But still, God could begin to dwell with his people again by means of, well, their holiness. And so several times in Leviticus, you've got these, these key passages where God makes clear that Israel must be holy. Why? Because God is holy. The ground of their holiness is their God's holiness. And this kind of sets the stage. Look at 11 verse 44. Go back to Leviticus 11. Verses 44 and 45. Here's a chapter where he's detailing distinctions between clean and unclean food. But he, he sums it up though. Where is he going with all this? Well, Chapter 11, verse 44, he says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not make yourselves unclean with any of the swarming things that swarm on the earth, for I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And that's just a refrain. Look at chapter 19, verse 2. The basis of their holiness is their God's holiness. If they're going to be his people, well, they're going to have to be holy. Chapter 19, verse 2. Verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy. For I, the Lord your God, am holy. That continues chapter 20, verse 7, chapter 20, verse 26. Over 50 times, it's stated that Israel should keep these commands and live this way. It says, because I am the Lord, I am holy. It starts with God's holiness and then extends down to his people's holiness. And that's just what Leviticus is all about. Now, in particular, God is going to make Israel holy by setting them apart in various ways. Of course, he's going to set them apart morally. That was already established in Exodus, though. He's already given the Ten Commandments and other laws. God has already begun to pass down his standard, the only real standard of right and wrong. Uh, Israel was no longer going to be like the wicked, godless nations in their behavior. They were to reflect the ethical holiness of God. And keep themselves free from the stain of sin and transgression. But that's not all. God was also going to set Israel apart in other ways. Kind of like I alluded to. He wanted them to be different culturally, religiously, ceremonially. And so God, for example, in Leviticus, he prescribes a list of holy things. Holy objects. Like the tabernacle, the holy place, the holy of holies, the showbread, the incense, the altar. Other objects of the temple, the sacrifice, the priests themselves, the priest's garments. The list kind of goes on. 
These are a bunch of holy objects that are to be set apart, distinct unto the Lord. And also, God prescribes for Israel a list of holy uh, times or days. He also wants them set apart in their calendar. The Sabbath, special months, the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Pentecost, Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Tabernacles. These are all holy days or seasons. There's even Jubilee every 50 years. Just it piles on. And God just is, is over the top making them set apart in just how they live. That they might rest and also remember their God and reflect their God who's distinct. In many ways, God wanted Israel to be distinct from the nations around them. But God takes things even further. And he continues to make a distinction for Israel between the clean and the unclean, the holy and the common. And that's really chapters 11 through 15. You can go, go to chapter 11. And this is where God makes all those distinctions between the clean and the unclean. What grabs our attention the most, though, I think is Leviticus 11, because that's where God details all those laws about clean and unclean animals or food, which is, it's really fascinating. Look, for example, at Leviticus 11, 1 through 4, just the beginning. It says, the Lord spoke again to Moses and to Aaron, saying to them, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, these are the creatures which you may eat. From all the animals that are on the earth, whatever divides a hoof, thus making split hooves and choose the cud among the animals, that you may eat. Nevertheless, you're not to eat of these among those which chew the cud or among those which divide the hoof, the camel. For though it chews the cud, it does not divide the hoof. It is unclean to you. And then just goes on. Go down to verse 46 at the end. After all these distinctions, it says, this is the law regarding the animal and the bird and every living thing that moves in the waters and everything that swarms on the earth to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean, between the edible creature and the creature which is not to be eaten. You know, famously, this is where the prohibition against pork came from. It's, it's well known that Jews do not eat pork, but that and many other dietary restrictions find their origin back here in Leviticus. Why is God doing this? And you see these and these other laws and rules, in one sense, they, they seem so arbitrary. Like, why, why is he making these distinctions? And this is law for them. And also, you know, what makes these animals even unclean? You know, answer that as a side note. These animals were not inherently unclean. Because, well, we know they all were later declared clean for the church. And also, all of these animals were once declared very good by God at creation. There's nothing inherently evil or wrong with these animals. But God, that being said, he gives no other explanation as to why he made these distinctions. Why not the other way around? He gives no explicit explanation for why these animals were, were divided but that being said, the purpose behind it is very clear. Uh, we, we don't know why this animal, why not that animal, but the purpose he's doing this in general is very clear. That God was just trying to make a, a very clear distinction between Israel, his holy set-apart people, and all the other nations around them. And one of the best ways to make that distinction was through diet. The nations, they would not be able 
to, to escape notice of Israel's dietary restrictions because it's so extreme. But that would give way to an explanation of Israel's holy God who redeemed them from Egypt. Why do you do this? Why do you eat like this? Why can't you eat that? Because we serve a holy God who redeemed us from Egypt. He's holy. He tells us to be holy. You know, in all, Leviticus is just dominated by this theme of holiness. Every page, every chapter has something to say about it. God setting apart this people unto him. They were to be like God ethically, and they were to heed his distinctions, making them distinct from the nations. And as God was, was perfectly holy, they had better be careful in heeding his words because God was not going to tolerate the unholy or the profane in his presence. He, he's just too holy. Part of the, the definition of his holiness, he, he cannot tolerate the unholiness or the unholy, the profane in his special presence. And this is especially accentuated when it comes to his tabernacle and the priests. It gets very serious because they are dwelling around that the special presence of God in the tabernacle and they are not to mess around. God will be known and treated as holy. And I think it's a good place to include the episode of Nadab and Abihu. And we're still setting the special focus of holiness. And this is the main narrative portion of Leviticus. It's, it's actually pretty short. It's mostly law, but right in the middle, chapter 10, you can go there. It just vividly illustrates this theme of holiness. And it really stands out. I find a way to Leviticus chapter 10. We'll read a little bit of this. Verse 1. It says, now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, so they're the sons of the high priest. They're going to offer incense before the Lord. It says, took their respective fire pans, and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And then Moses said to Aaron, it is what the Lord spoke saying by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy and before all the people I will be honored. So Aaron therefore kept silent and it goes on from there a little bit. It's, it's a, there's a few incidents like this in the old Testament where, you know, God look in the grand scheme of things. He is by far long suffering and merciful and patient even with his wayward and disobedient people. But sometimes he reserves the right to make an example out of someone that the rest may fear. And that's what happens with Nadab and Abihu. They're sons of Aaron, the high priest, and they did not treat God as holy. They did not regard him as holy. They profaned his presence and his sanctuary. And so God was going to display, this is what happens when you profane God. When you do not treat him as holy is judgment by fire. Now, since you probably wonder, you know, what, what, what did they do? What was really so bad here? What, what's this strange fire they offered? Well, we don't really know for sure. You know, back in Exodus, God had detailed how incense was to be offered. That's what they're doing. They had fire pans. They're supposed to place a special uh, incense from the altar onto their fire pans to offer that incense before the Lord. And so most likely they weren't taking 
their incense from the altar because it says they had done so, which the Lord had not commanded. So they, they took some other coal or some other incense. Like they didn't care about the small details. In addition, many believe, myself included, that they were drunk. That's because look down at verse 8 and 9 after uh, Moses rebukes them and says, basically, you can't grieve for them because they, they, they got what they deserve. They profane God. But it's very interesting. Right after verse 8, it says, the Lord spoke to Aaron. So God reveals to Aaron saying, do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons with you when you come into the tent of meaning uh, so that you will not die. It's a perpetual statute throughout your generations. And so as to make a distinction between the holy and the profane, between the clean and the unclean. And so as to teach the sons of Israel all the statutes which the Lord had spoken to them through Moses. These were the priests. They're the representatives. They're the mediators for the people. They especially have to get it right and treat God as holy that they might teach the people. But, you know, this prohibition against wine and strong drink in verse 9 it really makes no sense if, if Nadab and Abihu weren't intoxicated. Why else is that there? It seems pretty strong uh, correlated. He says that you or your sons will not die. Well, their sons just died. It seems most likely that was the case. Either way, though, they did not take God or his worship seriously. They were irreverent. They were flippant in approaching the holy God. But the God is not going to, to tolerate that. And he sent the clearest message to the rest of the people that if they want to approach him, they had better come holy as well. Now, real quick, though, I find this also very interesting. Most people don't know this. They maybe just focus on Nadab and Abihu. But, you know, Aaron had two other sons who weren't burnt up. They, they survived. Uh, Eleazar and Ith- Ithamar. But if you keep reading the chapter, they screwed up too. So the chapter goes on. They're the living sons. They're now like kind of taking over because Nadab and Abihu were the two older sons, but they're now moving in as like the next ranking higher priests. But as, as the chapter continues, it goes on to say how they too, right after this, violated the letter of the law. They offered a sin offering and God commanded these priests that after they are to eat the meat of that offering. But in this case, they didn't eat the meat. They entirely burned up the sin offering not supposed to do that. You only entirely burn up a guilt offering, not a sin offering. But Moses discovers this transgression. He gets angry. Look at verse 16. It says, Moses searched carefully for the goat of the sin offering, and behold, it had been burned up. So he was angry with Aaron's surviving sons, Eleazar and Ithmar. But what's interesting is they're not killed by God. Why not? Well, as you keep reading, I'm just summarized for the sake of time, but you find that you know, their reason for not eating the sin offering in their mind, what they were trying to honor God in light of the death of their brothers. In essence, they, they had pure hearts and pure motives, and they thought they were regarding God as holy. Now, they fell short of the letter of the law, but they were not killed like Nadab and Abihu. Because, I think it's safe to say, well, God looks at the heart. He's just as much concerned with our hearts and our motives, and these two sons were shown grace and mercy. They violated the letter of the law too, but, but they were shown mercy. I think both of these episodes teach us about God. He's long-suffering. He's gracious. He is patient and merciful with those who regard him in their hearts as holy. But he is not to be regarded as unholy. And we must never approach him flippantly or irreverent, irreverently 
And I think today all, all too many people have, are at that place where God is not holy in their hearts. But amongst us as people, may we likewise consecrate God as holy in our hearts. Then it will come out in our actions. Well, we'll leave it there when it comes to this first special focus on holiness. It's, it's just, we could go on. It's just dominating though. Every page of Leviticus, it's about the holiness of God and therefore the holiness of his people. But for time, I want to cover actually a second special focus. It's another aspect. It's really joined to the hip with holiness, but it also dominates Leviticus. So we'll do special focus too. And that's the sacrificial system. The sacrificial system. And these really go hand in hand. These themes, they're not able to be separated. God gave Israel this system precisely because he knew they weren't holy. They were sinners. There would be many times where they would fall short of his standards. And the system was put in place to cover their uncleanness, to make atonement for their sins, that God might still dwell in their midst. And the sacrificial system was the means by which the believer might be restored to God in a right relationship. The bulk of the sacrificial system is found in Leviticus 1 through 7, first seven chapters. And then chapters 8 and 9 go into the priesthood. But God prescribes five basic categories of offerings. And had such a great slide, just like perfect slides summarizing everything. But again, we put it up there and like maybe if you stood where I am, you could see it. But otherwise, you're not making out the text was too small. So if you want to come look at it later, you can look at it later. And again, starting next time, I'll, I'll probably have printed handouts for you, just the easier way to do it. But for now, I'll just kind of summarize the five major offerings of the sacrificial system. Now, first, you had burnt offerings. Burnt offerings were made for the propitiation of sins in general and for dedications. And in the burnt offering, the animal was entirely consumed by fire. This was the only sacrifice that belonged entirely to God. It was all burned up. Nothing was left. And you go to Leviticus 1. This is one where you participated in the burnt offering, which accompanied the guilt and the sin offering. But go to chapter 1. God, right out of the the gates, gives instructions on the offerings. He starts with the burnt offering. And as you turn there, basically how it worked is, if you're going to offer the burnt offering, you would bring the animal to the priest, but then you would lay your hands on the head of the animal, uh, symbolizing that the transfer of of your guilt to the animal. And then you would slaughter it yourself. You know, like it's in the Bible. So I'm going to say like, you're slitting its neck yourself. You are slaughtering it yourself uh, for atonement on on your behalf. Chapter one, verse four, he just mentions, he shall lay his hand. This is the offerer. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and that it may be accepted to him to make atonement on his behalf. He shall slay the young bull before the Lord. Then the priests come in and, and offer the blood on the altar. But this, this, was, this was gruesome. This was bloody. And you think about multiplied offerings. This, this was visceral and showing what? This is the price. This is the, the substitute needed to cover your guilt before God. You also have the grain offerings, the second type, the grain offerings. These were made to express a general thanksgiving for first fruits to Yahweh. Just an acknowledgement that everything belongs to the Lord, the grain offering. Third, you have peace offerings. 
And peace offerings had three types, three little subcategories. You had thank offerings. That's just you're thanking the Lord for an unexpected blessing. You had vow offerings. That's for deliverance when a vow is made. And then there's just the free will offering. That's just general thankfulness. You're just happy. You're thankful to the Lord. You bring a free will offering. And all these peace offerings were a celebration of their peaceful relationship with Yahweh. Fourth was the sin offering. Sin offerings would be made for the propitiation of unintentional sins as needed. This was the main way sin was dealt with. To cleanse sin, to bring purification and forgiveness, a death was required. And the power of life was seen in the blood. It's Leviticus 17 verse 11. So, So blood was required. Blood had to be shed for sin to be covered. And the last, you had the guilt offering. And again, the burnt, the sin, the guilt offering almost always went together. But the guilt offerings were made to atone for the repentant sinner, especially where there had been desecration of something holy or where there had been objective guilt. This offering often dealt with cases of reparation or restitution where wrongs were being righted between two parties. You would add a guilt offering for that. So that's the five basic categories of offerings that God prescribed for the people. A few observations. You'll note that these offerings were not instigated by the priests. They're all instigated by the people. So if the people never brought any offerings, there would be no offerings. This was up to the people to to bring them. Now, half of them were, were of your own volition. You brought these because you wanted to. They were free will offerings. But the sin offering, the guilt offering, the burnt offering, those were not free will. Those were imposed upon you. When you fall short, you are now uh, obligated to bring those offerings to be rightly restored to God. You also, what's interesting, you have, you know, grain or wine or flour or animals being offered in these various offerings. Apart from the burnt offering, a portion of that food basically fed the priests. Like they're not just throwing this away. Like you're, you're taking it home and eating it. And the priests are taking a portion and eating it as well. This is the sacrificial system was also a way that God was providing for food for the Levites. As one of the tribes set apart as the priesthood had no inheritance in the land. This, for those around the tabernacle, this was their food source. The sacrificial system uh, provided food for the priests. What's also very interesting though is when you look closely at all these atoning sacrifices, they're all made for unintentional sins. It's very clear throughout. These these are offerings for unintentional sin. Did you know that Leviticus, though, there's no prescription of sacrifice for a premeditated, high-handed, malicious sin. There's no offering for you. There's nothing for you, except you might say covering on the Day of Atonement. But for high-handed sin, there's there's nothing for you to bring. Nothing's prescribed, at least, for high-handed sin. Now, through these five categories of sacrifices... The Old Testament saint could maintain his relationship with, with Yahweh by repenting of his sins, removing his guilt, making propitiation, giving thanks to God. But keep in mind, all of these outward actions had to spring from a truly penitent and thankful heart. If the heart was not repentant and worshipful, all these outward expressions meant nothing to God. You need to keep in mind, we know, especially from the New Testament, that the sacrificial system was symbolic. 
God grants forgiveness one way, by faith and repentance. But the sacrificial system allowed a, a penitent, faithful believer to express his love and repentance and obedience to God as God prescribed. Again, if a person was not repentant and of faith in their hearts, that God had no regard for these rituals. What God desired most from his people was that they would repent and believe and obey him. Then these rituals would, would have a meaningful expression and to restore relationship and to be acts of worship. This point is made very clear by the prophets later on because Israel lost sight of this. Like, hey, I just go through the motions. I'm good to go, right? No. In 1 Samuel 15, 22, Samuel rebuked. He says, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. David likewise, in his repentance, observed Psalm 51 verses 16 and 17. He prayed to God and said, you do not delight in sacrifice. Otherwise, I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. And Hosea 6 verse 6, God says, I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. These aren't casting aside the sacrificial system. They, they still were called to this in obedience to God. But the prophets and David, they rightly understood God looks first and foremost to the heart. If you're not repentant and believing in your heart, these rituals mean nothing to God. But if you are, like David says at the end of Psalm 51, well, then I will bring sacrifice to your temple and it will be a form of worship and expression of repentance. But true removal of guilt and forgiveness came through a prayer in faith and confession to God. And God always saves and restores by repentance and faith. The sacrificial system was an expression of obedience and worship to God so as to preserve his presence in their midst. And these rituals gave expression to the penitent heart, reminded them of God's holiness their sinfulness, the need for a substitute. They just kept them dependent on God. But it was only of value when their hearts were repentant of faith, thankful, and filled with love. And going through the motions meant nothing. Well, our, our time is nearly up. But just to finish, so instead of covering uh, minor themes, I want to focus on those two major themes, holiness the sacrificial system. You could add to that, although we won't, you know, the presence of the Lord, the Jewish holidays, the notion of atonement. Those are all important themes in, in Leviticus as well. But for time, let's just finish up with a, a quick note on application for today, because it's not all in the past. And it's kind of hard to summarize. I'll just say, look, if you want more, just read the whole book of Hebrews tonight and you'll find the application of Leviticus. But in short, like we know the old covenant law has been abrogated, that we're no longer under its jurisdiction. In the church, we're under the new covenant law of Christ. And so, look, we no longer read Leviticus finding specific details for how we are to live in the church. We're not under the jurisdiction of that law. And so, most notably, just one example, that the Lord himself explicitly lifted the dietary restrictions for the church. In Acts chapter 10, that includes, well, 
all the restrictions of the Old Covenant were not under that law. Well, then how do we relate to a book like this? We just kind of throw it out because we're not under the Old Covenant anymore? No, for we know it's still inspired. Like 2 Timothy 3.16 says, it's still profitable. And we still learn here the holy character of God. And although the, the specific cultural expression has changed, that God still demands the same level of holiness from his people. Peter understood this in quoting Leviticus. Listen to 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16. He's caught talking to the church. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. He quotes Leviticus 19.2, that the essence, the principle still applies to the church just as much. We still have a holy God. We are to be holy like he is holy. And granted, God has dropped the ethnic, cultural, and ritual elements of that holiness, but he still calls upon us to be ethically and morally holy, to reflect the essence of his character and his image. And although we, we no longer need to offer sacrifices of animals and, and grain and wine, we're still called to offer sacrifices of, of praise, thanksgiving, worship. Even our very lives now are the sacrifices to God, just out of a, a thankful heart for what he did for us. You know, along those lines, we can be reminded from Leviticus that on our own, we're not holy like God is holy, nor can we be holy. We can't make ourselves holy. There's nothing we can do that just like Israel, we are just as unclean and defiled and that we too need a sacrifice. We need something to remove our sins and to, to take away our uncleanness. But we have the privilege of living on, on this side of the cross and God's revelation. And we know that the once for all sacrifice and the once for all high priest has come making a once for all day of atonement to, to, to pay for our sins forever. And we all were unclean, we're unholy, and therefore we were not right with God. But through Christ's finished work on the cross, dying as the Lamb of God, he made us clean, he made us holy, and thereby he made us right with God. It's perfectly captured in 1 Corinthians six eleven. He says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are washed. We went from unclean to clean. You were sanctified. We went from unholy to holy. You were justified. We went from not right with God to right with God. What can we say? Again, just read the book of Hebrews to, to learn a lot more. Our time is up. But in essence, we profit from Leviticus by seeing it through the lens of Christ, recognizing and remembering what it took for us to truly be made right with God. For all that God told Israel in Leviticus, they were still separate from his special presence. That veil remained. They could never go through the veil. But you know, as Christ died, that veil was torn from top to bottom. That The way to God's special presence was open through the blood of Christ. And those who believe in him now, one day, will go to dwell with God. But in the meantime, he comes to dwell with us. And he places his special presence in us and his Holy Spirit. We have a privilege that they never knew in some, in some respects. But we can appreciate what it took 
that we could be made fully right with God and, and fully dwell with his special presence. We thank God in his grace. He did not take our lives, but he gave the life of his son in our place. And that there's, there's nothing else we can do. There's no more sacrifices for us to, to earn this or to pay him back. We can't do anything. It's just by grace. But that being said, we as God's people now should still sacrifice. We have our own sacrificial system. It's all free will. It's not to, to merit anything. It's just out of the abundance of, of joy and thanksgiving and worship. We, we give. We give time, money, thanksgiving, prayer, praise. We give our very lives to God just because of what he did for us. Romans 12.1, he says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is a spiritual service of worship. That is our takeaway from, from Leviticus. We would offer ourselves as holy to our holy God for, for making us holy. All right. As I often say, that'll do it. Uh, finish our time up. I hope you uh, learned a little bit more about Leviticus. The next time you read it, you can appreciate it more. Don't skip it. Don't fall asleep. Do some like jogging when you read it or something. And stay awake and there's a lot in there to profit from. And you'll remember one word. Holiness. Okay, good. Just check. Let me pray. Our God in heaven, you are our holy God. And we take that for granted. We take that lightly. Who here has not trampled underfoot a true sense of your holiness? We are of the flesh. We are unholy. What can we say, Lord? We, we just thank you that despite our unholiness and unworthiness, you still set your love upon us, sent Christ for us, the ultimate sacrifice that you might wash us, cleanse us, and make us truly holy. We're now made holy in position by Christ. And, and now you call on us, like Israel, to be holy in practice, to now live practically holy lives. And I pray that's our response this evening, that as we reflect and remember on our holy but good God, who did so much for us to make us his own, his new covenant people, that we respond with with holy living because we love you. We can't can't make ourselves holy. We can't earn anything, Lord, but because of Christ, because of this gift given. For those who know him, they, they can only say, how can I not give my life to you? How can I not make these choices to regard you as holy. We don't want to profane your special presence. And now that's us. That's our bodies to help us to conduct ourselves in a holy manner. That is how we worship you. That's our sacrifice, Lord. So pray you, you consecrate us today to live holy lives before you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.